Welcome to Conversations with Mayi Lenz. That's me. I'm your host, a photographer obsessed with helping women lead unapologetically. On this show, you will hear not only from me, but from other amazing women who inspire me and are making a difference in the community. What does that mean, leading unapologetically? To me, it's leading from a place of authenticity without apologies. In other words, not seeking approval for being yourself, what you care for, and value. My goal with this podcast is to inspire and help women develop powerful confidence in themselves and recognize the value we bring to the community and the world as a whole. Whether you are a stay-at-home mom, entrepreneur, pursuing a career, or growing your business, we are here to build each other up. Let's learn and grow together. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast, that show that empowers women to lead unapologetically. If you are new to our community, welcome. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Mailens. My guest is Dr. Michelle Gordon, a former CEO and founder of a multi-million dollar surgical practice that she grew to include five surgeons. She is a coach and consultant specializing in burnout, recovery, and lifestyle design methodologies. Hello, Dr. G. It's good to have you here with us today. Can I call you Dr. G? Yeah, sure. That's great. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Tell us a little bit about yourself and why your journey has been like changing careers. Yeah, so... um. So I grew my practice. Uh, I learned how to I kind of crack the code on making money and I made a lot of money and I hired a bunch of people and I realized as I was doing it that I was, I started like looking at my life. I was really unhappy. And not only did I really dislike leading surgeons, uh, surgeons are an interesting group and, and anyone who's listening to this, who's in the medical profession will get it when I say surgeons are assholes and <laughs> And the reason I say that is because we have, in order to be able to cut into somebody, you have to have a pretty good sense of self-belief, self-efficacy. And it makes it hard to be led by others. And so the surgeons just want to be the boss. And I found that I really disliked leading surgeons. It was just not something I wanted to do. I and And as that became more and more evident, I became more and more depressed and sad and unhappy with my life and not wanting to go to work. And that manifested in at some point during the multi-year depression, some suicidal thoughts. And I realized that that wasn't how I wanted to live my life. And I started a plan to get out. But before I was able to do it, one of my surgeons died by suicide. And that was kind of a wake up call. And it wasn't because of the job. It was more because of personal life. But it doesn't really matter because whenever somebody who's close to you uh, takes their own life, it gives you a wake up call, like what's important in my life? What do I want to do now? That kind of thing. And so I sat down. It was November of 2019. And I and I was actually just before the pandemic, I was in, I went to Antarctica. I got to complete my seven continents and see a bunch of penguins and smell a bunch of penguin Aww. poo. <laughs> and um, while I was, while I was on that trip, it was, uh, we went to Chile and Argentina and um, in Antarctica. And while I was on that trip, I realized that um, I needed 
to create an exit plan. And that's what I did. And then the pandemic hit and it just got worse. Medicine just got a whole bunch worse real fast and it made it a lot easier to make the decision. And so by the end of July of 2020, I was out of medicine. Wow. You know, like usually in business, they tell you, what is your exit plan? Always have an exit plan. And you'll never think, you know, doctors, do they do they have an exit plan or do they, you know, is that when they retire, they're going to live the life, you know? <laughs> Well, for doctors, I think it's really important to think about it from this perspective. Doctors enter medical school because they want to help people. There's always an altruistic uh, motivation. It's not because of money, because there's a lot of other ways to make money and a lot faster. I mean, it was 15 years of schooling before I was even able to make any money. It's you know, undergrad, graduate school, um, residency. So yeah, so those are some of the misconceptions about yeah, doctors. Yeah, yeah, and doctors, like, I mean, well, well, doctors are paid in the top, you know, maybe 5% of uh, salaries, that's still, I mean, there's such a discrepancy between the 1% and the 5%, right? <laughs> um, so, so doctors are paid well, I'm not going to say that they're not, but there are other ways to make money that don't require 15 years of education. So we enter medical school with this altruistic, I'm going to help people thing. And then we go through medical school. And, and at some point in medical school, we realize that we're being taught disease management, not health care. And my view on that is that we're taught disease management because the only way that pharmaceutical companies can make money is by us prescribing drugs. So we're taught, here's this disease, here's how you treat it, or you treat it with drugs. We're not taught nutrition. We're not taught, you know, what's in the food, right? I mean, we hear about organic versus non-organic and the, the pesticides versus no pesticides. And, and I know people who had like multiple problems just from eating foods that had pesticide on them. And then they started growing their own food and their problems went away. So, so what happens is we get out into the real world, we get into residency and the way our residency programs are, are designed in America, they are militaristic and hierarchical. And so what happens is that the person at the bottom, there's just no way to skip the line and in residency, you've got to go through it. And and in a lot of other places, there's ways to skip the line, but in, in residency, there's just not. You've, you've got to pay your dues. And so the person who's at the intern level gets all the, the shit rolled downhill on them. <laughs> and, then, and then it grows up, goes up, and then they, they start to shit on the people below them. And this is a top-down problem because the people who are in charge are not really concerned about the well-being. Now, I I'm not in medical education right now. So I don't know what's changing there. This is just, I'm just talking about my own experience. And I went through uh, residency training from 2000 to 2005. Um, but in surgical training in particular, it is very hierarchical, very difficult, and um, almost, almost abusive to the point where if you make a mistake, you, you, know, you can get um, just, just slaughtered in psychologically slaughtered in what they call morbidity and mortality conferences. So it requires a, an amount of resilience 
to get through training. It's hard. And and I, I know a lot of my colleagues were on antidepressants, myself included, getting through to get through medical training. Wow. Um, and then you get out and, you know, you're like, yay, I'm out. I'm going to make a lot of money. And then you find out that the worst, your worst enemies are going to are other doctors and they're not there to, to, you know, in medical school, you might have friends who are like building you up and whatnot, but then there's so much competition and there's been such a, a culture of keeping doctors from organizing. And it's actually illegal for doctors to organize in, in like a union type fashion. Yeah. I was going to ask if that yeah, was like that type that, of a union. Doctors, doctors don't trust each other. And because doctors don't trust each other, we're not able to really band together in the way that we need to, to combat insurance companies. Now let's just go back to the 1970s. In, in the 1970s, the laws were such that medical insurance companies were not for profit. And then Reagan came in and Reagan changed all the laws and insurance companies started being for profit. And that's when you started to see healthcare costs go up. Healthcare costs went up and we started paying more and more for our insurance and less and less was that of that was going to doctors. And now we see six administrators for every doctor. And then reimbursement just goes down and down because the whole idea is to prevent what they call medical losses, which is payments to people who provide your care so that they can improve the bottom line for their shareholders. So it's all about profits. And that's America, right? America is a land of the corporation and the home of the profit. And it's not really about individuals. Wow. That even gets scared to even think about being, becoming a doctor. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why, I mean, I, I don't recommend medicine as a profession. Um, there are ways to, you know, you could become a, a physician extender and have a lot of autonomy and and still work in the profession if that's something you want to do. But it's not really a place to go for entrepreneurs anymore because unless you're going to build a device because um, corporations have taken over medicine in the same way that corporations took over farming back in the 80s. So there's it's really hard to run a solo practice now because you can't get insurance companies to negotiate fees with you unless you have hundreds of thousands of covered lives. So you need a big group in order to get paid uh, a decent amount. And the just it's, it's rigged. The whole system is rigged against people doing things on their own. And, and if that will that work also for, is that the same system for uh, the medical profession as, as dentists and? No, dentists are, dentists are or different. Or is that a whole so different? Dentists, when, when, so back in. And, back and in the, I asked because my daughter wants to become an orthodontist. I'm like, yeah, so it's, it's very different. For So dentists okay. are not a beholden to insurance companies. So what really happened was in the 1980s, there was a, um, a commission called the Stark Commission. And what they did was they found that doctors were going into business with other doctors or with a lab company or whatever. And then they were referring people to other doctors. So let's say that I was your primary care doctor and I referred you to my friend who's a surgeon, but, and, and you needed surgery, but you know, my friend who's a surgeon did what most business people do. They'll give me a referral fee for referring that patient. So just like you do with your affiliates on your right. online business or like a lawyer will do. And the Stark commission decided that this was a amoral. 
that this was not okay, that you couldn't refer to your your own business. They thought that it was uh, unlawful profit-taking. And so what they did was they handcuffed doctors from making uh, a living. Now, granted, there were a lot of people out there who were um, uh, unethical about this, but I mean, it's it's just normal business practice, but they they throttled it and they started, you know, they, they, it, what I think is really funny about this is that these lawyers who were, you know, the, 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 you know, the congressmen and stuff decided that what they do with normal business practice was amoral for doctors to do because we're supposed to be held to a higher standard. It's, it's just a double standard and it makes no sense. But so this happened. And when that happened, then, um, that's about the same time that the insurance companies uh, went for profit and started having a lot more control. And now insurance companies decide whether or not you can have a test. And it's not a doctor who gets to make that decision. So if your doctor says, hey, you need this test, the insurance company comes back and says, um, no, we're not paying for that because it's too expensive. And as a matter of fact, one of the insurance companies, their first they they deny everything from the very beginning. It doesn't matter whether it's clinically indicated or not. And you've just got to fight. And so now not only do doctors have to fight to get the money, that they need somebody to actually fight to be able to provide their patients the care they need. So now we have people calling and 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 you know, if you're if you're working on your own, right? You've got somebody who's calling and saying, getting getting approvals or pre-authorizations or making things clinically necessary. But then on top of that, you have somebody who is uh, at least two people for every doctor, probably more, for fighting with the insurance company just to get paid because the insurance company is denying pay, payment. And so it's a really difficult business model. And it's also a business model where you don't get paid until after you do the work. And oftentimes you only get paid maybe 50% of the time, depending on what you're doing. And so for me, it was not sustainable anymore. And so it was, it, you can see how I could get burned out from that. Yeah. I was going to say, no yeah. wonder you burned out. So yeah. is this where you um, open your own practice or you grew that to five surgeons? And l let's talk then a little bit about burning out because no. this is more than just feeling exhausted. You talked about even committing suicide. What well, I thought about it. I wouldn't say that, you know, I, 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 no, I mean, I, right. I, the, the thoughts were, yeah, there. the thoughts came. Scary. And, yeah, it, it was scary. And, you know, the thoughts came in ways that were like, I understand why people do it. And should I kind of thing? Those were the, that's, that's the way the thoughts went in terms of, um, the, the burnout really came from, decreased reimbursement. That was, that was huge. I mean, I saw my income drop like over 50% in one year and it wasn't for lack of work. It was because the insurance company stopped paying. And I had, you know, I was on the hook for payroll for four other doctors. So that was really frustrating. And then on top of that, it was um, difficulty leading hard personalities, which is, yeah, I was just like, this is not fun. And I want to have fun in my life. And then the other thing is that as a surgeon, I had to take call at night and I wasn't getting sleep. I was taking a lot of call and I wasn't sleeping. And so lack of sleep is its own form of burnout. And I just got fed up. 
Wow. Let's see. I'm not, I'm not a surgeon. I'm not, I'm not in the medical profession. Somebody listening might be thinking, okay, but how do I spot my signs? How, how do I know I'm dealing, I'm heading to burnout? How can I, you know, like, how do I know I'm heading or I'm already there? Especially entrepreneurs or solopreneurs. It's hard to recognize impairment from burnout when you're in the middle of it. So the first sign of burnout in the healthcare profession and probably others is lack of empathy. So empathy starts to go, and that's when you start to make snarky remarks about your clients, your patients, um, and and resentment, resentment towards having to go in, you know, open the door and walk in the, you know, walk into work, or uh, resentment for not feeling appreciated. And most people leave their jobs because of underappreciation. And that was another thing was I was providing a really needed service to the hospital and they did everything they could to keep me from being successful. And it was frustrating. And I just was like, no, I, this, my life is worth more than this. Yeah. I, I think that might be the number one <laughs> ingredient of leaving a company feeling yeah. underappreciated. Yeah. I, I, I was working for this company long, long time ago. And um, I even went back to school to get a position that I wanted in the company. So they just brought somebody from the outside. Mm. And I was like, see ya, forget it. I got pregnant. And I was like, this is my exit plan. And we can talk about your exit plan <laughs> in a little bit. <laughs> because I was like, oh my goodness, these people, yeah. like I wasn't, and I used to fight for the company. I felt like that was my company. I was like that to that company. Yeah, you were. Like, yeah. And that's what you want. I mean, if you're an employer, you really want people who, right. who will like talk about your company on LinkedIn or, or on Twitter or wherever and and will really like um take ownership of their position. Right. So they lost a good one. Oh, for sure. <laughs> for sure they did. Uh they lost a good one with you too. Mm. How can we um successfully make behavioral? changes what are some of the steps in your opinion because um we know that setbacks can easily set us back or take us back to mm -hmm. old patterns but before you cover that what is in a nutshell just for context what is behavioral change well behavior change is really just taking taking something that you want to do thinking about where it is you want to be and taking the action that you need to do that, that you need to, to get to where you want to go. But it's hard. Behavior change is hard. So let's start with diet and exercise and, and weight loss because, you know, unfortunately because of advertising and because of Hollywood, most of us don't have a good acceptance of your of our bodies and we want to lose weight. Now there are reasons to want to lose weight that are healthy. Like I'm overweight and I don't want to be unhealthy. And then that is a lifestyle change that if you start to take this lifestyle change, you can actually create permanent change in your life and, and reap the benefits there. But if you want to lose weight just because you don't like how you look or you hate your body, then most likely whatever you try, you're going to self-sabotage because you have a program running in the background that is basically, I hate myself. And so you have to work on that first. And the hardest part, I think, when it comes to behavior change is, is under 
is uncovering the beliefs that keep you from going where you want to go. Because whenever, when it's desire and belief, belief always wins. So if, if your belief is I'm fat and ugly, no matter what you do, it's not gonna even, even if you were to lose all that weight, you're still going to think you're fat and ugly. That's one of the signs of anorexia, right? That's what, that's already any sort of eating disorder comes from a belief. I'm not an expert. I'm just, that's just a postulation. But so when it comes to behavior change, the, the trick to it is to find a reason that's important enough to you to get up and do it every single day. And so I usually tell people to start with their why. Why do you want this? What's it going to give you? And get to the bottom. Like keep asking yourself, what when I get this, what am I going to get? Until you get to a really deep reason that's going to get you out of bed in the morning. Otherwise, you know, you're just going to be stuck in the inertia of the couch. Right. Like, why do I want to exercise? Well, I want to live to 150. Oh, well, what do I get when I live to 150? I get to see where uh, technology goes. Like, what's an AI going <laughs> to be? That's exciting. Right? Um, so... So I, I think that it's it's uh it's a combination of finding your why and then and then really changing your beliefs to the point that you become the disciplined person that will get up and do the things that you need to do. And find a way to make it easy for yourself. Like if your belief about exercise is that it always hurts, then how are you gonna get yourself to exercise? My it's it's taking that little steps, baby steps. And sometimes we want to get from point A to point Z in just one jump. Yeah. But we have to go through the alphabet. And maybe not on the way that you were talking about in the in the medical school, <laughs> standing <laughs> at the bottom and they just spit all over you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not in there, that there way, some, people. There are some places where you can skip the line. And I think that skipping the line comes from being willing to take risks and being willing to accept failure as a lesson rather than failure as a reflection on who you are. And so that requires uh, an innate sense of self, an innate understanding that you are infinitely worthy. And when you're infinitely worthy, you walk around differently. Yes. When you know that you are worth every bit of everything you're asking and more, because at the end of the day, there's only one of you. There's only one of you on this earth, right? And you are the most unique version of you. There's nobody else who can be like that. And the more you, you infuse into anything, the more unique you're going to be and you're going to stand out, right? I love it. And so it's so important to pay attention to the things that are quirky about you, that make you feel, you know, like you're different because those are your superpowers. And this is one of the ways you can avoid burnout or at least recover from burnout, because I think sometimes burnout comes from trying to fit in. Mm-hmm. When I first started working as a surgeon, I wore suits to work every day. I fucking hate suits. <laughs> right. I'm like, who am I? Why am I doing this? Is I like to wear I wear jeans and T-shirts. That's what I wear. Right. <laughs> and I was like, who am I trying to be? But, you know, it's true what you said. When you feel good, you act differently. When you when you look good. Because sometimes I wear like certain clothes and I'm like, oh, it's not that I'm, you know, it's just that 
I need to find something that looks good on me and that makes me feel good. Yeah. You know, especially I tell people when you go to a networking event and your heart feels like, you know, it's going to pop out of your chest. That's change that thinking and say, is I'm not nervous because it's people are going to reject me or they're going to say, no, you're all up in your face. Just get up like straight up straight. And you start walking in a different way. You walk in there thinking, you know, how can I serve? Yeah. Who here needs my help? There's you know, somebody out there who needs changes. your stuff. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I've never been to a networking event um, other than like a couple of clubs that I was in a long time ago. But I, you know, I I would say that the way I network is I like on LinkedIn. I I, I use LinkedIn a lot. And I'm like, how can I help you? That's the first thing I say, right. what, what do you need in your life right now? And, and maybe I can, you know, maybe I can hook them up with somebody I know or, or something. Right. And not necessarily that you have all the answers. A lot of the times is we feel like we're going to be rejected because we don't know. Yeah. But we find, so like you said, we find somebody that knows we connect them. Yeah. And well, that's, that's you, how it is. There's nothing wrong with saying, I don't know, but I'll find out. Or I don't know, but I think I know somebody who might, right? Exactly. That's that that's such a superpower to be willing to accept what you know and what you don't know. And the other thing is that when you when you're able to take small steps consistently, that's when you start to make the big changes in your life. But it really has to be these small, consistent consistency is key. Like you don't you don't lose a hundred pounds by eating, you know, 1200 calories one day and then 3000 calories the next. Right. And, and that's just talking about calories. I, I don't want to get into diet because diet is, there's so much belief there, but, but it's just such an easy way to talk about it because anyone who's lost a hundred pounds and kept it off had a shift in their state of being. They decided they were going to be somebody different and then took the steps to be that person before they saw the results. And that's the only, that's the only true way to create lasting change that and accountability. Yeah, that's very important. Public and people are watching you. It's a lot easier to stay consistent. Yeah. Consistency is key, but accountability, I will say that's that, that, yeah. that will be the number one. And that's why accountability is so hard to sell because people don't want to be found out. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> Radical responsibility is, um, it's, it's, it's a great concept, but how do you, you know, like if I'm taking responsibility for every, you know, everything in my life and it's my, you know, I'm where I am because of me, that's it. Right. And what do I have to do to get where I want to go? And how do I stay accountable with that? And who do I talk to? And, and, you know, it's, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard. I teach discipline, I teach accountability, I teach goal setting, and I teach it in a way that makes it easy to follow because when you can have, when your behavior changes, it feels effortless, but then you look back, like let's say you're making 1% changes, 1% improvements on a regular basis. If I can say tomorrow that I'm 1% better in my health, in my spirituality every single day, like what I ate, how much I slept, uh, whether I move my body and whether I meditated, if I can say I'm 1% better every single day, then by the end of a year, I'm over 3000% better. 
Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I had a question and poof, it went out of my, it, it went out the window. It's okay. <laughs> but, oh, but you know, when you said that people are afraid of being found out, is that also people are afraid of seeing starting small? Well, I don't know about that. I think it has to do with imposter syndrome. I think that society, especially us as women, uh, we get taught from a very young age that we're here to serve because we live in a patriarchy. And the sooner we can kind of shed that belief that women are here to serve. And it's hard because- To cook and clean? What's the, to cook and clean <laughs> and, and bear children, right? To be the broodmare <laughs> of the family. Um. And and that's nothing. I'm nothing against women who choose that. Right. Okay. I, I really don't because we need to have more people in the world. And we need, obviously, I mean, I've had a baby. But I only had one. So we didn't replace, you know, <laughs> didn't replace our, our population. But um, there's, there's nothing wrong with taking care of your family. If that's something you want to do, if that's what you feel called to do. But if you feel like there's a deeper why inside of you and you feel like you're being held back by a relationship or by obligations, then that's when it's time to really examine your beliefs, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing wrong. Mommy's out there. <laughs> that's a very important job that we do. Yeah. You know, we're raising the new generation. Right. But who are you going to be when your kids leave? And that's, exactly. I mean, that's, that's where, you know, I used to talk about menopause a lot and how I talk about menopause now is, you know, our kids grow up, right? So we may, we may find a lot of identity in um, taking care of our kids while they're young and then they leave. Who are we now? So menopause is a time, I think, of reflection. It's a time to pause and regroup and think about who do I want to be now? So rather than look at menopause as a time to complain and, you know, deal with all the hormonal changes, which are just as difficult as puberty, if not worse. I'm starting there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm it's, hitting it's, there. No, it's rough. It's rough. I, I'm not going to lie that there are significant issues that can come with menopause. But if you can start just looking at it as the privilege of a long life, if you start from that perspective and then say, what is the opportunity in this? And how can I, how can I reinvent myself now? Like that's kind of what I did. How was, can you make it exciting? Yeah. And you can. No, I, my daughters, and, and I don't know if you can see them, but you know, I'm letting my gray grow. And like, I love, I love dyeing my hair, but right now I want to enjoy my grays because a lot of the time I t like, my cousin is like, you want mine? My friends, oh, I can, <laughs> I can give you mine. Are you crazy? I'm like, I'm enjoying them for the first time. Look, they're growing. Yeah, I can't see them. Oh, man. I mean, I have a lot of gray in my hair, too, but oh, you, you can't see, see it. Here, here's on one. You see, it's one yeah, long, so long one. I just think it's beautiful. I used to look up to my grandmother. Yeah. I'm like, how can I be like her? So wow. I, I want my kids to one day say, I want to be like, I want their, their own personality, their own. But I want them to look up to me and say, Hey, if I get down, I can get up. My mom did it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's just such a really good time to, to reinvent yourself and decide 
what you want in life. And I mean, I think there's a couple of people that we can actually look to celebrities, like look at Madonna and, you know, she does look a little weird now. I don't know what she did to her face, but, but every, you can see every uh, phase of her life. She has reinvented herself to stay up with a trend to, you know, and you don't, you don't get in front of that many people without having a good sense of self, right? It comes back to knowing that inside of you is infinite worth. There's a piece of God inside of you. And when you can, when you can look inside of that and say, yes, I am part of God. Right. How, and, and I used to be an atheist. I thought, I thought I was anyway. And, <laughs> um, and I found spirituality. I found this guy, this guy right here. I read a book. Called oh uh, Yogananda, Yogananda. Yeah, I saw her. I saw his um, uh, documentary. Oh sure, yeah. So I saw. I saw. um, I read this book called Autobiography of a Yogi that he wrote, and yeah, that's the one. They did a documentary, I believe. It made the whole Jesus story make sense to me. Now, I'm not against Christians for what they choose to believe. Which is um, me. That will be me. Yeah, no. <laughs> that listen, is my choice, right? It's, it's I fine. love how you put that, it. I think it's that huge. there. Jesus had a lot of great things to say. The problem is with Christianity and any organized religion is that over the years, what happens, and this has happened also with Yogananda's religion, the, the message gets twisted into a form of mind control and behavior control and mass control rather than like, if you go back and, and read the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic, it sounds an awful like the New Age, an awful lot like New Age. Like, oh, cosmic consciousness, come in. And so there's there's some really interesting things that, that Jesus said uh, that have been watered down. That we misinterpret. Well, yeah. You know, it's like what happened with the, the new, new international version of the Bible where uh, the the whole, like, gay thing came in because it wasn't until then like there was a whole conference where they started condemning gay people when jesus never said anything about that he didn't care and as a matter of fact when you read in in ancient greek when you read about love um in the ancient greek text most of the time they talk about love it's uh man boy love or man man love so it's Mm, interesting yeah i I, I didn't know that yeah morals change i mean you know, society's changed. What happens and now? Do I think it's okay for a man to love a boy? No, of course not. That's wrong. But back in ancient Greece, that was like a really common thing. A common thing. Yeah. Wow. Do I think pedophilia is okay? Absolutely not. <laughs> but I think it's important that we know that we know these these that that things get shifted over the years. Now I don't read Aramaic, but I've I've read interpretations of Aramaic from people. And when, when you hear, especially the Lord's prayer in Aramaic, it is, it is very, very different than what. A different. different, Yeah. So I challenge everyone to go find the Lord's prayer in Aramaic. And if I had, I wish I, I wish I would have known we'd talk about it because I would have had it. You gave me a little homework to do. I love learning. I love learning. And and I tell people, you know, it's a choice whether you read the Bible, whether you believe in Christ, whether you believe in the universe, it's it's a choice. 
I'm yeah. choosing every day to read the Bible or to go back to church or not go back to church or <laughs> I'm having all this confusion in my head, but I'm always trying to learn to grow. You know, it's, it's until the day we die, we, we continue learning. Yeah. No, if you're a lifelong learner, um, that's so, so, so important. Yes. To stay, and to stay with learning. So this brings me to this question. What is your perception of beauty? Well, we're talking about being photographers because you yeah. love photography. You take pictures. You you love it. Uh, we were talking about cameras before yeah. we started the recording. So I'm curious, what is your perception of, of beauty? So, well, it depends on what you mean by beauty. I can I can see beauty in a cloud. I can see beauty in the stars. I've always been fascinated with the Milky Way when I was growing up. It was very dark where I grew up in uh, southeastern Washington state. And so during the summertime, you know, I could see Mars. I mean, I, not Mars. I could see the, the Milky Way obviously saw Mars too, but I would look up and the Milky Way would be there. And, and I always found it fascinating. And now I live where there's a lot of light and I don't see it. I can't look out. There. I don't see anything see in Miami. <laughs> yeah. So, but you can, if you just take a boat and go out a mile, mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, then you can just look up and you can see it. You can't take pictures on a boat <laughs> <laughs> of the Milky Way <laughs> unless you have a, you know, a really, really shallow uh, area. Anyway, um, so I, I think I think beauty is um, it's so subjective. So and that's I mean, that's the beauty. That's the beauty of beauty. Right. I mean, what is beauty? I can I can be in a moment and think it's beautiful. My son's recently been in the hospital and watching him stand up because he was in the hospital in a bed for three weeks, maybe four. Wow. Um, just watching him stand up was a beautiful moment. Watching him feed himself. So I think beauty is is very, very subjective. But if you want to talk about, you know, specifically for the camera, what I think is beautiful, <laughs> um, I like to catch I like to catch people in moments. I like, I think that that's, that's a time that's beautiful and I'm not a wedding photographer or anything, but I've, I've photographed a few, uh, events and I always, I like to catch people like just before tears or when they are surprised, I think, because that gives you a, a forever kind of memory. Wow. I, I like that. Um, and then landscapes. I, I just, I think that there's. The problem I have with taking landscape photography is it never looks as good <laughs> I mean, as it does to my eyes. But I, I do, I do, I took some, some really beautiful photographs in Antarctica um, of penguins and rocks and, and icebergs in the background. And, and that was, that was really fun. Or even seeing children in a school in Myanmar and taking their photographs. So for me, I think beauty, it, when it comes to photography, beauty has to do with how I feel when I'm taking the photo. Yeah. That's I probably the it. best way to put it. I love seeing the transformation of a person going from, you know, scare when you just bring the lens up yeah. 
And then the way when they relax and transform and just feel the moment, feel beautiful. Because you said something really beautiful there. When they see that moment, they can feel it. Yeah. And you can feel it. You got yeah. to capture that. I love it. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so ne- now let me circle back to, because uh, somebody might be listening to this and say, um, wait, she said something about exiting. What was your exit plan? Well, so I had cracked the code on making money and I had saved a lot of money. And so I figured that I would be able to do okay with the amount of money I had. Now the market is not so great. And so I, I I will admit I'm a little nervous right now, but when I also, I was doing the menopause business and I was doing okay. I mean, I had a launch and I got brought in like 30 people at a thousand dollars each. And I thought, okay, if I can do this on a regular basis, I'll be okay. Um, but then the market changed and I was attracting people who didn't want to pay. And so I've really had to practice. It's, it's marketing is not easy. I've found building a business isn't easy and being a doctor isn't easy, but at least when you're a doctor, it's a lot easier to get clients because people get sick. So it's a recession proof kind of job. So marketing is harder and I've decided that I, there's a couple things I have to be really good at. And one is I really have to understand marketing. And the other thing is I really have to be the best in my field. So I have to be the best coach and I have to really understand burnout. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm about. Wow. You dropped some big nuggets here. <laughs> <laughs> I love it because you are in the middle of this change. Yeah. So anybody listening, it's it's doable. You just have to have the mindset. And, it, it, you know, it's like, I, I love it. That's why I love doing the podcast because I learned so much from, from other people and especially people that are going through those changes. You know, it's not a celebrity. It's not somebody that it's already, you know, very successful. You are successful, but you're going through some changes in your business. I love it, which leads me to this question. What is one thing you stopped apologizing for that helped you level up, whether it was your practice or maybe now when you're transitioning? Now, the first thing, the very first thing that comes to mind is making money. I I stopped apologizing for making money because I did a very non-conventional business practice when I was, when I figured out how to crack the code and it made my fellow doctors angry and I decided I didn't care. Because I, I didn't care it, it, you know, and somebody would come up to me and try and shame me for my business practices. And I said, listen, that's none of your business. You know, you, you might have been here for 25 years or whatever, but this is how I do business and it's fine. It has nothing to do with you. So shut up. At first, I was apologizing. I get calls from people saying, these are my patients, whatever. And finally, I said, you know what? What I do has nothing to do with you. So stop. And that's one, that, 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 was, that was important for me to stand up for myself and not apologize for making the kind of money I was making. So uh, just for reference, in the, from 2012, at the end of 2012, uh, until 20, I want to say 2018, 
I think my practice, not, not that, not in profit, but I think I made like $25 million. So it wasn't, it wasn't nothing. It was, it was a lot of money and doctors aren't used to seeing that kind of money. They, they don't think they're worth that. Mm, wow. Yeah. I love what you said. And this is something, um, that my mentor always says, you cannot be shamed for giving great service. Right. You're worth it. So prize yourself accordingly. Well, it's not just that though. Remember you are, you are worth infinite dollars. So whatever you charge it, when it comes to charging for your products, it has to be something that, it, that is congruent with who you are. You have mm -hmm. to feel good about the pricing. So if you try to price too high and you don't believe that, that, that you can command those prices for that particular product, then you're not going to be able to sell it. You have to get to a place where your nervous system actually says yes to it. Because mm. if you don't, then you're never going to be successful in business. You have to get to a place where your nervous system says, yes, this is, this is doable. And if that means that it's a hell of a lot less than your mentor says, that's fine. Fuck your mentor. It doesn't matter because you have to be congruent with you. Right. And also the service that you're giving. If your service is not congruent with what you're selling, if you, if your prices are here, but your service is here, maybe you need to level up your skills. Absolutely. If there, if there's a skill gap, then take the time to learn the skill because you'll always have the skill. The more skills you have, the more, the more value you can present to your clients. I love it. Oh my goodness. This has been an amazing, amazing episode. Thank you so much. Where can people find you and connect with you? Yeah. So you can go to drmichellegordon.com, D-R-M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-G-O-R-D-O-N, drmichellegordon.com. And we're, we're currently putting everything on there. There's going to be a little membership that you can join to get some of my um, products and things like that. I've got a menopause product that's almost ready to go on there, but you can join my email list and I'll tell you all about it. Um, and then on top of that, you can find me on Facebook at Dr. Michelle Gordon or Dr. M. Gordon. You can find me on Twitter, Michelle E. Gordon, LinkedIn, Dr. Michelle Gordon. Uh, that's it, right? Oh, Instagram, <laughs> Dr. Dr. D-O-C-T-O-R, Michelle Gordon. Awesome. I will provide all the links on the show notes of this episode. Thank you so much for all the knowledge you share with us today. It's been an amazing, I, I think I can talk to you forever. <laughs> I don't have anything in common when it comes to being a surgeon and the medical profession and the ER other than what I see on TV. <laughs> And I don't watch TV that much, <laughs> but I found something amazing that you, your love for photography and yeah. just being human, <laughs> being human. I mean, we all are the same um, inside. And if, if you get nothing else from this podcast, remember that you're infinitely worthy. I love it. So I'm going to just leave it there. Thank you so much. And you have a beautiful, beautiful day. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening today. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your friends and family and consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts or tell us what you think on social media. On Instagram and Twitter at Mayi Lens and on Facebook page Conversations with Mayi Lens. I'm so grateful to be on this journey with you. Until next time, talk to you soon.